I uh, want to welcome you this morning to uh, Plum Creek Chapel, and we are excited about continuing our review of what lies ahead. You know, last week we tied up in a nice bow our study of rewards and the judgment seat of Christ and all that's related to that. Uh, the week before, we went back and reviewed God's kingdom promise and traced it through Scripture, and we're going to pick up with that again uh, today, and I've got several Scriptures that I've marked out that I want us to look at. Before we get into that, we're getting closer and closer to the launch of our prophecy night, and this is uh, going to be really something. I've, I've sketched out uh, a theme that we're going to start with. It's going to be called The Time Is Now, Why Bible Prophecy Matters Now More Than Ever, and so far I've got 14 topics that I'm going to cover. I haven't put them in the order yet, but this will take us weeks. I'm hoping it takes us until the rapture happens, uh, which really, if you know anything about the doctrine of imminency, should not tell you anything, because when I say I hope it lasts till the rapture happens, that could mean I hope it lasts one week, but it could mean I hope it lasts, you know, six months. I don't know. But anyway, uh, so really, really getting excited about that. The Lord's kind of given me a, a good burden for what I think we want uh, to cover. Uh, so we'll say more about that theme as we get closer. <clears throat> But again, the theme is the time is now, why Bible prophecy matters now more than ever. And uh, that will start Tuesdays, January 31st from 6 to 7.30, uh, right here at Plum Creek Chapel. For those of you in, in the area and for those of you online, we will live stream it at 6 a mountain time. And then a couple of events. I'm hoping we can get some folks from Colorado to head out east and join us for these. I know we've had several, uh, uh, four already uh, folks from the Not By Works family that have signed up to be there. Uh, but two conferences coming up in Florida. The first is a Saturday Sunday at Liberty Baptist Church in Claremont, Florida, entitled What Is This World Coming To? An Overview of End Times Prophecy. You can link up to that at notbyworks.org and register for it. It is free, but they are taking registrations. And then uh, right on the heels of that, two weeks later, I'll be privileged to be at the uh, Orlando Prophecy Summit with Prophecy Watchers. And uh, that's, that's a longer conference. There are 15 speakers. I'll be speaking twice. Um, and I just submitted yesterday my topics for that. Let me see if I can... I call them up. I don't want to call them up on the computer or it'll mess us up. But one of them is going to be called, uh, and these are going to be at the, at the Orlando Prophecy Conference. Let's see here. One of the first one is going to be the totalitarian tiptoe, the Luciferian plan for full spectrum global control. And then my second session is going to be Bloodlust, Exposing the Luciferian Depopulation Agenda. So if you've read my Spirit of the Antichrist books or you've been a part of the Plum Creek family for a while, we've touched on both of those topics, but putting together some new data coming out of the World Economic Forum meeting this week uh, in Davos and, and also just some other research uh, and going to f uh, focus in on those two topics. So you can learn more about both of those at uh, NotByWorks.com. Uh, org and see some of the other speakers there. Going to be excited to, to uh, be with Billy Crone and Brandon Holthouse and uh, Bill South. L.A. Marzulli has been a hero of mine for years uh, and really looking forward to uh, kind of spending some time uh, with him. And again, if you're watching on live stream, we've been really increasing our live stream numbers over the last few weeks and picking up new folks all the time because of our presence on social media. We did uh, launch social media January 1st, uh, not something I've really ever wanted to do. I've never been on social media, but uh, for such a time as this, it's necessary to help get the gospel out and get the word out. So uh, we're on all the, the big uh, social media platforms, and that's picking up new listeners. And so if you haven't watched or seen the books, uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, I encourage you to go to spiritoftheantichrist.org spiritoftheantichrist.org, and you can uh, read all about those. So uh, we are in a review stage now, which no telling how long uh, that will take, but as long as the Lord uh, allows and as long as we need to. Remember, for our 9 o'clock study on Sundays, I encourage you to ask questions, make comments, clarify things if you need to. Feel free to uh, raise your hand at any time. So obviously, the What Lies Ahead series is an eschatology series. So we're focusing in on the end times. And so the chart that you see on the screen kind of highlights uh, not everything, but at least in terms of the timetable, the beginning and uh, a few highlights in the middle and then all the way to the end of what we uh, consider the end times in Scripture. So the end times begin with what event? 
The rapture, exactly. The rapture starts the end times, uh, you know, clock. And then there's a whole host of things. 16%, in fact, of the Bible relates to unfulfilled future uh, prophecy that will happen after the rapture. On the screen, you see a few of them that we've highlighted. Primarily, they're right in the middle of the screen, that seven-year period called the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. It's a time uh, when the Lord's wrath is poured out on planet Earth through the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. Uh, the church is rescued before uh, that seven-year period, uh, but it's that time when the Antichrist takes the helm, rises to a position of prominence, and rules the world in, in a reign of uh, complete and utter tyranny. He and the false prophet uh, will be working together to control the earth. Uh, he, uh, Satan will indwell the Antichrist. At the midpoint, you see on the screen there, the abomination of desolation is something that both Jesus and Daniel talk about, and it is when the Antichrist himself will demand that the whole world worship him. So it's about more than just control and geopolitical events. It's a one-world system politically, uh, religiously, economically. Remember, the mark of the beast will keep anyone from buying or selling unless they have government permission. They won't be able to shop or feed their families or anything like that. So, But the religious component is what happens uh, when uh, the one who makes desolation, the, uh, the, the Antichrist, uh, sets himself up as God and demands the worship. Uh, and then three and a half years later, of course, Christ comes back. Uh, we have the Battle of Armageddon and the inauguration soon thereafter of the, the kingdom, that final kingdom that we talked about uh, two weeks ago. And in that sense, all of God's prophecies find their ultimate fulfillment in that future messianic reign. So if we look at it in a panoramic view of, uh, of the ages, you can see that right now, highlighted in yellow there, we're living in the, the, the last days. That's why the New Testament refers to the church age as the last days. Um, and it, that's different from the end times. The end times, of course, is like we said, it's everything uh, from the rapture to the new heavens and the new earth. But the last days are the current days. It's been 2,000 years uh, so far, and uh, we don't know how much longer uh, it will last. But the next age uh, is the kingdom age, and that's what we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. So we talked about God's kingdom promise. If you missed that session, it's really foundational uh, two weeks ago. Uh, for really kind of laying out where we're going today um, because it demonstrates that going all the way back to the garden, we started in Genesis 3, there has been this unconditional promise of God of a future kingdom that has very specific uh, details associated with it that the Bible spells out. And if you don't believe in a literal earthly kingdom like so many don't today so that, that reject Bible prophecy or have a false view of Bible prophecy, the kingdom now folks, the replacement theologians, those who think we're living in the kingdom today, those who think there's no future for national Israel, that kind of thing. If you think that, then you have to ignore passage after passage after passage where the plain, normal, literal sense of the passage meant something to the original recipients and it meant that there's going to be a literal temple, a literal throne, a literal kingdom with boundaries, a literal king sitting on that throne, a literal time of unprecedented peace when all of the governments are upon the shoulders of the, the Messiah himself, and so on and so forth. Uh, so we uh, are going to zero in a little bit more closely today at the key passage uh, on this kingdom promise. And again, if you go way back over two years ago to the beginning of this series, we did talk about this. I've updated it a little, added a few more verses in preparation uh, for today. I always try to review everything I'm going to be speaking and kind of add to it. And sometimes I, you know, change it significantly. Sometimes it's substantially the same. But I added quite a bit uh, for this morning's message. So if you've been with us through the whole series, this may sound a note of familiarity. I also have a whole chapter dealing with this in our book by the same title, What Lies Ahead, A Biblical Overview of the End Times, and there are some of those out on the table. So we want to start uh, this morning by talking about the unconditional covenant behind this promise that we read so much about, Old and New Testament alike. Um, and uh, God's covenant undergirds the promise that Scripture refers to again and again. Uh, in fact, this covenant program of God is really the key to understanding the whole program for the ages. If you, if you don't understand this covenant that we're about to talk about, then of course you're going to be confused about God's end times uh, program. 
so uh, let's take our Bibles and look at Genesis chapter 12. This is where we get the first glimpse at this unconditional covenant. Now, as we chart this out in a moment, I'm going to, going to something I did not do last time, but I wanted to take the time to do this morning, is I'm going, to, I'm going to show you how this covenant, though it is given here, is reaffirmed again and again with Abraham again, with Isaac, with Jacob. Later on in the Psalms, you see the, co- the reference to this covenant reaffirmed with the same type of language. Um, but this is kind of the, where it is in its uh, initiation. And we call this the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, Now the Lord God said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. So I've highlighted the word land there because this is the first of three key components to this unconditional promise. One of them is land. Later on in Genesis chapter 15, and we'll look at this a little bit later, we get more details about the boundaries of this land. In fact, at the very end, I don't remember if it was last week or the week before of our session, nine o'clock session, I actually showed you a uh, slide that I'm going to show again this morning that, that demonstrates, based on Scripture, the fact that Israel has never occupied the full land that was promised to them. But the reason this is important is because what do you think Abraham understood God to mean when he says, I'm going to send you to a land? What do you think he meant? I mean, what do you think he thought God meant? <laughs> land. I mean, really, it's not that complicated, right? This isn't, you know, Yiddish, right? This is, a, you know, basic language here and he understood what the word land meant the hebrews eretz and uh, and it meant a physical geography especially later on when uh, he gives the boundaries of it so it would be completely disingenuous of god and and basically dishonest of god to be promising a land to abraham and his descendants if in fact what he really meant is some kind of a nebulous spiritualized concept in, in, the, in the unseen realm or reigning in our hearts or so forth. Uh, that's not at all what he meant. But he goes on. So he says, uh, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Then he, the, the next component of this promise is, I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. Now, as we're going to see this morning, that, that concept of blessing, which we'll get to in a second, is, is loaded with significance globally. This isn't just a personal thing for Abraham and, and Sarah. This was, as we shall see, a global promise. But the first, uh, before we get to the blessing, thing that he says is going to happen is there's going to be a great nation that comes from Abraham. Remember, this was before the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel uh, came around three, uh, two generations later. Uh, who was the beginning of the nation of Israel? Jacob, right? So Jacob was Abraham's grandson. Jacob had 12 sons. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name was changed from Jacob to Israel. So at this point, you know, some 2,000 years before Christ, as God is giving this promise to Abraham, you can just imagine how it would have been received. I think he, he, of course, took God at his word that he's going to become a great nation, but he's probably looking around and thinking, how's that going to happen? You know, especially with Sarah being barren and so forth. So, the, then the, so you've got land and seed. And then the third component in verse 3 is he says to Abraham, I will, and, and again, notice the I will statement there. This is unconditional. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now we begin to see the scope of this blessing. This isn't just a, I'm going to make you wealthy, Abraham, or I'm going to give you a big house, or I'm going to take care of you, and, or you're going to have a lot of kids. It goes way beyond that. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3, really is the beginning of our study of eschatology. And actually, as we said last uh, two weeks ago, uh, Genesis 3 15, when God says to the serpent, I'm going to crush your head someday. That's the beginning of it. But in terms of outlining the details and beginning to put together how this is going to happen, this is it. So when you read most eschatology books uh, or watch eschatology videos, they tend to start 
with the rapture or with other end times events. Um, and that's all part of the end times, to be sure. But it starts, and if you pick up our book, What Lies Ahead, it starts in Genesis. You cannot understand the end of the story until you understand the beginning of the story. And so I want to take a moment to illustrate how this is an unconditional covenant. Again, notice the number of times he says, I will, the, to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you and so forth. So uh, this is the unconditional aspect of the covenant. And so after giving that foundational covenant, God then reaffirms the covenant with three additional unconditional covenants. And that's four of the five biblical covenants that we see in the Old Testament. And I want to just take a moment to talk about those five covenants. So we just talked about the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Next comes the land covenant, where God reaffirms the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant that we just saw, but in greater detail. And he explains the boundaries of that land and the extent of that land that Israel is going to have. Next comes the Davidic covenant which comes a thousand years later when God makes a promise to David that his seed, which is Abraham's seed also, will be the, the one who takes the throne and rules forever and ever over a global kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice. So that's also unconditional. And then you see finally a reference 500 years before Christ, so 500 years later, to uh, the new covenant. When God promises through the prophet Jeremiah to the post-exilic community who might have been at that time thinking, God has abandoned us. <laughs> I mean, it's over. We, we forget those covenants. God's obviously forgotten us, and it's, it's curtains. And God sends Jeremiah to reaffirm once again, no, no, no. Everything I promised Abraham is going to happen. And he says, someday I'm going to ratify this new covenant with you. And, and that covenant was ratified through the blood of Christ at Calvary, uh, 500 years after Jeremiah the prophet. And we see repeated references and details about this new covenant in uh, not only Jeremiah 31, but Ezekiel 36 as well. And so basically, as I'm going to show you in a moment, the Abrahamic covenant is the foundational one. The land, Davidic, and new covenant reaffirm everything that God already said through Abraham with more detail. But there's a fifth biblical covenant, and that's the Mosaic covenant. And I've separated it out here with a different color because it's not unconditional. The Mosaic covenant is not like God's covenant program that is a guarantee, an unconditional. It's simply an I will statement. It does not depend on you know, us or the nation of Israel. Uh, the Mosaic covenant, by contrast, was a rule of law. It was kind of a stewardship that was put in place. It was a conditional a covenant. And so if you look at the difference here, a conditional covenant is if you will do this, then I'll do this, right? And it's to fulfillment depends on the recipient. That's exactly what the Mosaic law was. And as I chart this out in a second, you're going to see that in the New Testament, we find out that that covenant has been set aside. We're no longer under the law. We're no longer under the Mosaic covenant. Uh, it was a steward that was put in place until Christ came now that we have the church age and the indwelling Holy Spirit, we're, we're following the law written on our hearts. So the Old Testament law is no longer operative for today. It was, it was served a purpose for a specific time. But the other covenants, again, going back to the first four, these are all unconditional. And uh, unconditional covenants, there's no if attached. Uh, simply an I will statement, a promise from God, and its, its fulfillment depends solely upon the one, in this case, God making the covenant. So before we begin to chart this out over time and show you, you know, how these covenants came in, 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 in a timeline, uh, any questions about uh, the foundational covenant of the, uh, uh, that was given to Abraham or any of the follow-up ones? Any comments or thoughts? Yeah. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So that's a great question. The question is about the new covenant, and I, I referenced a moment ago that it's been ratified. It was ratified with the blood of Christ at Calvary, uh, but it has not been inaugurated because, as I'm about to show you in this chart, the the complete new you know covenant program of God that started with Abraham and, and these first four bullet points you see on the screen is all eschatological. It doesn't happen until the King comes and sits on the throne. 
So uh, they've all now been ratified, meaning sealed, signed, given, right? Because remember, Jeremiah didn't make, didn't announce that Yahweh, God, had made a new covenant. He said, I will in the future make a new covenant. And that covenant was made with the Messiah when he came, born of a virgin, and, and gave, shed his blood. So by the time of Calvary, at that point, everything is in, is in place. But there's a difference between signing a covenant and the implementation of the covenant. And the in, illustration that I use is, uh, and by the way, we're about to see that it's very clear when this will be fulfilled. Uh, but if you think about in, in America, our, uh, our electoral college system for elections, right? We vote in November, and by the way, it's, it's gotten a little bit weird the last few years because of all kinds of Luciferian influence, but in a normal world, we vote in November, your vote actually counts, and then the Electoral College meets in December to certify the vote or ratify the vote, but when is the new president inaugurated? Not till January, right? So... There's a distinction between a ratification and an inauguration. And the same thing is true with God's kingdom. So we're not living in the kingdom today. The blessings of the new covenant are not happening today. I know that's new for some of you because we've been taught for 1,800 years throughout the Dark Ages and all the way through to the Protestant Reformation and beyond that we are the new covenant. The church is the new Israel, that the new covenant is today, and so forth and so on. If you look at the details, which we're going to do, of the new covenant, it's not happening today. It's nothing like today. It's a clear distinction. For example, in the new covenant, Jeremiah says, when the new covenant is inaugurated, no man will need to teach his neighbor because everyone on earth will know about the Lord. What is the church commission to do? Go into all the world and teach. <laughs> so that's a clear you know, distinction. Um, uh, Israel's not in the land today, which the land element of the covenant program is reiterated within the pages of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We're going to look at Ezekiel 36 in a moment. And, and it's tied right in there. So you can't have the blessings of the new covenant until Israel is in the land, right? So um, the church is a mystery. Uh, and we are uh, a microcosm of life that will be true in the kingdom. We're a foretaste of the glory to come. We are, as we've talked about before, uh, intended to uh, provoke Israel to jealousy. Let me look and see if I've got that... Uh, a chart on the purposes of the church. Yeah, here we go. So the church is a creation that was never mentioned in the Old Testament. It was part of God's plan all along, uh, as we saw with the seven ages and the panoramic view of history. But it's not something that is predicted in the Old Testament. The purpose of the church, among other things, is to get Israel's attention, to give Israel a foretaste of the glory that's to come when the kingdom is fully inaugurated. But today we don't have... Uh, global peace. We don't have global righteousness. We don't have perfect equity with a, uh, a perfectly righteous judge sitting on the throne. We don't have any of that. So uh, we're living in this uh, inter-advent age that the Bible later describes in Ephesians and elsewhere as the church age. It's a time when God's the riches of God's grace are being showcased like never before. Um, it's also a time, according to Ephesians chapter 3, when God is showcasing his wisdom more than ever before to Satan himself. Go back and look at Ephesians 3.10 sometime. And so uh, he's also helping to prepare a body that's going to rule in the Messianic kingdom. One of the things we talked about uh, in our study of eternal rewards is that, uh, according to Luke 19 and the book of Hebrews and many other passages, the, in this present age, those who are faithful are going to be given specific leadership roles in the kingdom someday. So the church is not Israel. The church is not experiencing uh, the blessings of uh, the new covenant, in my view. And I know some you know, good scholars disagree on that. Uh, some people will, will speak, in, even dispensationalists that understand the distinction between Israel and the church, will, will speak of the new covenant because they know when you read the text, it can't be fully enforced today. It just doesn't fit. Uh, and plus it was made with Israel, not the church. Jeremiah 31 says, I make this with both houses of Israel. Um, so some dispensationists will speak, well, it, the new covenant's future, but the blessings of it are spilling over into the church today. And I have a whole video that we did years ago on the new covenant, which I explained the different views, and I diagram that out as, as it's kind of literally spilling over. 
I don't think that's the case. I think it's completely separate. And uh, there's nothing in the New Testament that speaks of the new covenant applying directly to the church today. Uh, all of the references to the new covenant are either in the context of the Lord ratifying that covenant at the Lord's Supper in the upper room or uh, in the book of Hebrews where he's trying to prove to a Jewish Christian audience that, that what's in store for them because of the new covenant is much better than what Israel, the old Judaistic system, had to offer. So he's just making comparisons there. So you don't see any direct references to the church being participating today in the new covenant. So does that make help clarify? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. When you do communion and you said, you said do this and remember for me, it's a new covenant in my blood. Mm -hmm. How does that fit in? Yeah, so the new, as Fred mentioned, the Lord's Supper and how Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which it is. Uh, the church was not in effect when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. You we, have, we know that, right? The church didn't come about until 50 days after Christ's resurrection, and this was the day before his crucifixion. So the church was not in existence. Uh, but absolutely, the new covenant is a global blessing, including the church and everyone else, and we we should celebrate the ratification of that covenant and look forward to it. That's why he says, do this until I come. Because once he's come and the new covenant's in force, we won't need to do it anymore. We won't need the reminder. We'll be living it in living color. So, yeah, I think uh, it's something, the new covenant, don't, don't misunderstand me. It's not like we should ignore it or set it on the shelf or have nothing to do with it. It's very much a part, as we're about to see, of God's plan. It's just that we're not living under the new covenant blessings today. That's the key. The new covenant blessings won't be inaugurated until Christ comes back. Okay, so let me, uh, let me kind of chart this out, and I think it'll start to become more clear. So if you look at, there's a rudimentary timeline on the, on the bottom there. We've got before the law, then we've got Israel and the law, then we've got the church age, and then we've got the kingdom age, okay? So my chart that I had up earlier kind of takes it in terms of dispensations or stewardships that the Bible uh, delineates. A stewardship is just a, a t an age when the, the rules for interacting with God change from one to the other. doesn't mean different ways of salvation. Mankind's always saved the same way by grace through faith, but the way we interact with God is different. So Adam and Eve clearly interacted with God differently than we do today. Uh, uh, Noah clearly interacted with God differently than we do today. The children of Israel definitely did uh, during the law. And the church today is interacting even differently again. We have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have uh, unmitigated access to God. We don't have to go through human mediators. We have a lot of blessings of the present church age. Um, but so I just kind of truncated that down to four big main sections, everything before the law, Israel and the law, then the church, and then the kingdom. So we start before the law with Abraham, as we looked at a moment ago, the Abrahamic covenant, which is foundational. And as we said, it has three components, land, seed, and blessing. And uh, God, you know, reiterates those then through three separate covenants, the first of which is the land aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. And that is reiterated, as I said, through Genesis 15 and Deuteronomy 30. So if you look at Genesis 15, here he, here he is again. He says, to your descendants I have given this land. What land? Well, now Abraham has some specifics. And he spells out, as you can see on the screen there, the boundaries from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And he lists some of the peoples that were in the land at that time so that Abraham would have a point of reference. Um, you know, it, it, it's... Uh, if I were to say, you know, uh, I, I'm making a trip to the northwest, well, that you kind of have a direction, right? But, but what if I said, I'm going to visit Washington and Oregon and Idaho? Well, now you kind of know specifically what I mean in the northwest, the Pacific Northwest, right? That kind of thing. So that's what God does here. And as I promised, here's the diagram. In blue is the geographic boundaries of the promised land as given in Genesis 15. In red is modern-day Israel. And by the way, if I showed you this diagram in 1947, there would be no red on it. 
because for 1,800 years, Israel wasn't even on the map. So one of the great signs of the times that we know we're getting close to the end of the age is the fact that God reestablished Israel in the land after World War II, and this is their land. So clearly that does not fulfill the promise that God gave to Israel, all the way going back to Abraham and then reiterated through the, the land uh, a covenant. Um, so not even close, in fact. Um, and so uh, if we continue on, we see that the, the land covenant was reaffirmed in, during the time that Israel was uh, a people, after they fled Egypt and were wandering in the wilderness. And then we see uh, the seed element uh, reiterated even later, a thousand years later, uh, well, 400 years after uh, the land covenant was reiterated, uh, God spoke to David and promised him that his seed would, would have a house, a kingdom, and a throne. How long? Forever. Now, as we did with Abraham, just imagine you're David and God is promising you this. Remember, David didn't get to build his temple. His son Solomon did. But what do you think David thought when God said you're going to have a house, a kingdom, and a throne? Three different key aspects of the kingdom. The house is the temple, brick and mortar. The kingdom is the boundaries and the people over which his descendant is going to rule. And the throne is the actual physical throne that he will sit on and from which he will rule. Now, you know, if you're David and you're hearing that, you're not thinking, God just promised that someday there's going to be this spiritualized allegorical temple and it's going to be in my heart and we're going to, you know, Christ is going to reign in some you know, ethereal way. No, no, you, you understand in the ancient Near East what a house is and what a kingdom is and what a throne is. And so David took God as he should have at his word and believed that he's going to have this eternal kingdom. But notice the last word there, forever. So even Solomon, who came after David, didn't fulfill that promise. And then, of course, after seven, if you fast forward all the way to the time of Christ, so a thousand years after David, uh, to the late first century when Rome destroyed the temple, from 70 A.D. to 1948, Israel didn't even exist as a nation. Now, of course, God's people existed, and they were scattered abroad as they had been many to have been many times throughout their history, and they will be one more time prior to the final regathering. Remember, when the Antichrist sets himself up as God and demands that everyone worship him, they're going to flee again. Jesus said, when you see that happen, head for the hills. Flee. Flee Jerusalem. Uh, but when Christ comes back, Matthew 24, uh, let me call that up on the screen here. Uh, if you look at uh, Matthew 24, and I think it's verse uh, 13, Jesus speaks of that regathering when he comes back. Uh, actually, 2431. Yeah, so you can see on the screen there, uh, this is Christ's return at the end of the tribulation. Notice verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So this is at the end of the seven years. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now notice, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds of heaven, uh, from one end to the other. And this fulfills the promises uh, in all through the Old Testament. But you see, you see them in, in all the passages we've already looked at, that Israel will be regathered in the land. Even though they've been scattered, they were scattered by you know, Assyria, by uh, Babylon, by Greece, by Rome, uh, and they'll be scattered by the Antichrist regime, but they will be regathered, and the prophets of old make that uh, clear. So um, let me go back here to our presentation. So when David heard this concept of house, kingdom, throne forever, he understood what it meant. Uh, he didn't get to see it in his day, neither did Solomon, and to this day it has not been uh, fulfilled. So once again, you've got, just reviewing, the Abrahamic covenant with its land, seed, and blessing, reaffirmed over time, once again, the land aspect, the Davidic aspect. What about the blessing aspect? In what way is the whole world going to be blessed? Well, God reaffirmed this through the new covenant. 
which again was promised in Jeremiah, and Ezekiel spoke about it as well, uh, and then given in the first century. So let's talk about this blessing. Go to Ezekiel, a key new covenant passage. And notice what he says. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among all the nations. How many of you recognize that the name of the Lord is being profaned more than ever before today? I mean, it's blasphemous. Uh, you know, you know, you've all know a Harari, a leading Satanist, a Jew, by the way, a leading Satanist and Klaus Schwab's right-hand man, claims that God's been dead for a long time. It's just taking a while to bury the body. That, you know, we just, we naive, ignorant Christians just keep, and Jews keep, you know, believing in, in a God, but he doesn't exist. Elon Musk, another satanic transhumanist, said, you know, was asked, uh, do you believe there's a God? And he said, well, not yet. I haven't created him yet. You know, he's trying to create God. Right? So, uh, so absolutely, God's name has been profane. But he promises here when the new covenant is inaugurated that the nations will know that I am the Lord when I am hallowed in you before your eyes. Well, when's that going to happen? And by the way, the whole chapter is worth reading. It gives all kinds of details about the new covenant. Uh, and we can come back to some of them if we have time. But um, the, uh, the, 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 when will that happen? Not until Israel is regathered in belief in the land. They're not in belief today. That's the reason you got people like you've all know Harari, right? The nation of Israel has not returned to the Lord and accepted her Messiah. That won't happen until Christ comes back. But when she's regathered into the land in belief, then that's, that will constitute being hallowed or set apart uh, before the whole world. And everyone will know that the Lord is God. So that's the new covenant kind of reiterating the seed blessing. But I want to take a moment to kind of walk you through how this promise to Abraham has been reaffirmed even generation after generation. So it was made, as we saw in Genesis 12, then it's reaffirmed again in Genesis 22 with Abraham. What was the context of Genesis 22, remember? Anybody? Abraham and Isaac, sacrificing Isaac on uh, the altar, right? And in on that occasion, God takes the opportunity to once again remind Abraham, look, as I told you, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why did he choose that moment to reaffirm his unconditional covenant? Not that he needed to. God only has to say things once, and it, you can take it to the bank. Not central bank-run <laughs> banks today, because that you won't count on it. But, I mean, metaphorically speaking. Because he was about to sacrifice Isaac, his seed. And when God provided the lamb, God says, look, you trust me. And, and Abraham did trust him. And he, and he says, good for you, essentially I'm paraphrasing, because as you know, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now fast forward to Isaac. And in chapter 26, we see God reaffirming Abraham's gone. Isaac is in place. And God reaffirms with Isaac this unconditional covenant. And he says to Isaac, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Sound familiar? It should, because that's the Abrahamic covenant. And God is reaffirming it with Isaac. And once again, notice the scope. First of all, he references land. I don't have it highlighted there, but the land is a key component of this. That's why you cannot hold to replacement theology or amillennialism or any other false view of Bible prophecy. It makes God out to be a liar. Uh, but what I have highlighted here is notice, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Are all nations on earth today blessed and worshiping God and acknowledging God? By no means. And then fast forward again to Jacob. And in Genesis 28, you see the covenant reaffirmed with Jacob. This is God speaking to Jacob. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east and to the north and the south. And in you and your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now fast forward to an anonymous, uh, no, I'm sorry, this was Solomon, one of the two Psalms that Solomon wrote, Psalm 72. And uh, King Solomon uh, writes, His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. 
So has that happened yet? Nope, not yet. Uh, and by the way, let's look at Psalm 105. Uh, psalm 105. This is a great uh, psalm. And let me put this up on the screen for you here in the room. So Psalm 105, verse 8, is an anonymous psalm. Notice what he says here. Again, this would have been about the same time frame as David and Solomon. He says, He remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham. See how important that covenant is? And we see it referenced again in the New Testament. I'm going to show you in a second. His oath to Isaac, and he confirmed it to Jacob. We just read those three passages. To Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. When they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers were in, in it, the land. When they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people. This is why Daniel's prophecy is so critical, because it outlines you know, God's uh, plan you know, for Israel and the Gentile domination over the ages. But yet, here the psalmist is saying, God hasn't forgotten his promise. He permitted no one to do them wrong, meaning ultimately destroy them. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes. We see that again and again in Israel's history, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. So, you know, if everywhere you turn in Scripture, you see this reference to the kingdom and how vital it is in God's plan of the ages. And then one more passage here as we talk about the seed blessing, and that goes to the New Testament, where Paul, in the first letter that he ever wrote, is talking about uh, how one day in Abraham all the nations will be blessed, and so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. And this gets back to Judy's uh, comment and question. The fact is, even though the new covenant has not been inaugurated yet, everyone on earth will be blessed in the new covenant era. When the kingdom comes, it's a global blessing. God's different people groups have different roles to play. The church, for example, the bride of Christ, will be ruling and reigning with Christ and serving. Uh, Old Testament saints will be also ruling and sitting down at the banqueting table and uh, enjoying this fulfillment of the long-awaited promise. The Jews that survive in their physical bodies the tribulation period will be enjoying un, uh, uh, adulterated life in the kingdom without sin and uh, you know problems. Um, but you know, notice Paul says the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. In other words, God's plan all along was not just to save Israel, what was that through Israel to save the world, right? That's why Jesus uh, told uh, the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. Not just for the Jews, but of the Jews. Jesus uh, is a Jew. And it's through the Abrahamic seed and the Abrahamic line that all the peoples on the earth will be blessed. And we come to a relationship with Yahweh, God, the same way Abraham did, by faith. Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed God and was declared righteous. So, again, and he quotes here the Abrahamic covenant, in you all nations shall be blessed. Um, so, uh, real quick, just to finish up, this, or to get to a stopping point anyway, this covenant program that you see in blue is absolutely foundational to the ultimate kingdom. Now, God, as we read very clearly in the New Testament, uh, set Israel aside temporarily after they rejected the Messiah at his first advent. God inaugurated a new age, the church age. Uh, it's called a mystery. Uh, the, the book of Ephesians calls it a mystery. Uh, this is where I referenced earlier that Paul says that the law was a tutor until Christ came. Um, but we're no longer under that tutor today. We're under the law written on our hearts. He said in Ephesians 3, that, you, you know, indeed you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, this present dispensation, which in other ages was not made known. That's why it's called a mystery. A mystery, the Greek word mysterion, it means something previously unrevealed that is now being revealed. It doesn't mean something confusing. It just means something new. What is that mystery? That Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise. There's that reference again. In Christ, 
through the gospel. So uh, this is the mystery of the church that we're living in now. What a privilege that is. But uh, Paul tells us in Romans 11 that during this present time, blindness in part has happened to Israel. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by blindness? Well, Israel, of course, rejected the Messiah. They didn't receive him. They crowned him with thorns, right? So they've been blinded. But it's only a partial blindness. Why? Because there are Jews today and have been for 2,000 years who believe the gospel and get saved. Paul was chief among them and, and many others. The whole early church was Jews that believed in Christ. Uh, but as the church has expanded, doing our job in this present age as God's light in this perverse generation, we've seen people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language uh, get saved. But it's a partial blindness to Israel. But notice what he's going to go on to say in Romans 11. So you've got the present church age, but let's go back and pick up the kingdom. The kingdom will be, will find, and God's covenant program will find its fulfillment in this coming kingdom. The very next verse in Romans 11, Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved, meaning delivered. Remember the word saved just means delivered. And in the context, he's talking about the return of Christ because he quotes here uh, from uh, Jeremiah and I think also Isaiah, the deliverer will come out of Zion. That's Christ. That's why it's capitalized in the New King James. And he will turn away ungodliness for Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So when will this covenant, again, back to the question we talked about earlier, be inaugurated? When the Deliverer comes out of Zion. That hasn't happened yet. And when the Deliverer comes, then all Israel, not just the remnant today, the partial Jews that get saved, but the entire nation will be saved. Now, it doesn't mean, all doesn't mean every single Jew. It's all in context to some, but it's meaning the whole nation. So in the first advent of Christ, the nation rejected him. Just go back and read Matthew 23 and Jesus' conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees. They rejected him and crucified him. Yet there was a remnant of Jewish people who believed. The second time he comes, the whole nation will cry, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and the government leaders will accept him. But there will still be a small number that are blinded and reject the gospel. That's why Jesus challenges the future tribulation generation of Jews again and again to be not deceived, be not deceived, be not deceived, because some still will. But you'll see a reversal. First time, a few were saved, the nation rejected. The second time, the nation receives them, a few will still reject them. So bottom line, this whole you know, kingdom program here that you see on the left guarantees the fulfillment of the kingdom someday. Uh, we're not in that kingdom today. Again, 16% of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. But we can count on the fact that the kingdom is going to come. Now, in the rest of our review, we're going to talk about the details of that. And we're going to talk about how the very first thing to happen is that God has to get the church out of the way. He can't resume his dealings with Israel uh, with the church here because the church is not appointed to suffer wrath and God still has seven more years of his 490-year plan that Daniel gave for Israel to deal with. So he's going to get the church out of the way. Then the spotlight's going to shift to Israel. We see that's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah chapter 30. Uh, it's all about Israel, that seven-year period. Then Christ comes back, as we've just reading, been reading about, and that kingdom is inaugurated when the deliverer comes out of Zion. And then we have the millennium and all the other things that we've talked about. I can't believe we got all that in. Um, I just have to talk faster. That's the key. Uh, any closing questions? I know we're out of time, but we can take a couple minutes for questions. Yes. Do you think you can actually sit on the throne at any point in the millennium? Yeah, I think that's a very possible. I don't. I, the question is, will David actually sit on the throne? I believe that he will. A lot of dispensations believe that he will. Um, you know, I, I can't say for certain. Uh, but I, I think there will be a throne of David in the king, that, if you've pressed me on it. I think there's several passages that point that out. But isn't Jesus going to be sitting on the throne? Well, Jesus is going to be sitting on that throne, but there are lots of thrones. Remember, Jesus told the 12 disciples, you're going to sit on 12 thrones with me. So I think, I think David will have a throne, but it's not going to be the throne. So Jesus is supposed to be the judge of the whole world. Absolutely. Jesus is the king of the world, the judge of the world. Yeah. 
No, David won't be doing that. So remember, Christ came as prophet after his crucifixion and ascension and resurrection and ascension. He is now functioning as our high priest. He will return as king. And ultimately, after the millennium, he will serve as judge at the great white throne. Those are the four offices of Christ. Prophet, priest, king, and judge. He's only serving as the priest now. Now, he is all of those things at all times because he's God. He's, he shares those attributes eternally. But in terms of his functionality, he's functioning as our high priest at the right hand of God today. Any, anybody else? Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, you bet. Don't want to cut anybody off. Oh, do I believe that Antichrist is Jewish or Gentile? I do not believe he's Jewish at all. I think that's very clear from Scripture. Antiochus Epiphanes that Daniel talks about in Daniel 8 prefigures the future Antichrist. He was completely Gentile. Um, you know, the, the nature of the things that are described to him in Daniel 11 about denying the gods of his fathers. I think he's going to be a pluralist who probably comes from uh, you know, either Western or Eastern Europe. If you look at Daniel's statue, the Nebuchadnezzar statue, you know, the five toes on each leg, you've got this, this divided future revived Roman Empire, just like the original Roman Empire was divided with Rome and Constantinople. You'll have the future Roman Empire divided. And I believe the Antichrist could come from either one of those nations. But I do not believe he's Jewish. Otherwise, the analogy with Antiochus makes no sense. But some people do. And I, I mean, good people disagree on that. I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm okay with them being wrong, you know. So. All right, well, let's take a break, um, and we'll come back for worship uh, right around 10 o'clock. I know it's a short break, but I appreciate your uh, helping us out with that. For those of you live streaming, we typically start the live stream when I get up to, to preach, which is about 1025. Thanks, and God bless. <laughs>